Welcome to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners. This is the podcast that brings you inspiring people and their inspiring stories. How did they find their way to the top and how can their path help you do the same? Here's your host, network broadcaster, executive and entrepreneur, Craig Cam. Right now on this edition of Tracks to Success, you'll meet a man well-versed in economics, the legal world, and the world of big-time sports. He's been the head of general counsel, and he's been a general manager in the NBA. And it all began as a student at Stanford, who found his way to an even higher education at Virginia, and then a role with the Delaware Supreme Court. His passion is sports, and his resume would suggest the NBA was his calling. He held a legal counsel role in the league office before heading off to Vancouver as an associate GM for the Grizzlies. When they moved to Memphis, he stayed behind, became an agent for a powerful sports management company. Then, back to the team game in a GM role with the Minnesota Timberwolves. But the ride has taken him to a place he didn't see. A rebound of sorts with a blossoming organization called the Beautiful Game Group. He is well-respected, seemingly always being recruited, and he's a slam-dunk leader when it comes to building teams and supporting and empowering people. His name is Noah Kroom. His inspiring story and this edition of Tracks to Success starts now. Noah, thank you so much. This is a, a really fun time for me to be able to talk to you. And I want to give uh, people a little insight into how we met because I've been following you ever since. It was Columbia, <laughs> Missouri, which if people know me, they know I end up there quite a bit. But you were in town and we met up. Tell the story about uh, about us kind of hanging out and why you were in Columbia that weekend a few years back. Uh, yeah, I, I was in town scouting. I believe it was the um, Missouri Tigers basketball team's home opener and Michael Porter Jr.'s first and only game uh, as a Tiger. He got hurt before the game, ended up playing a couple minutes. Um, I'm originally from East St. Louis, which is where Quanzo Martin is from, uh, and have known him for a number of years. So I, I was in town checking out uh, Michael Porter and then ran into you uh, that evening after the game. Yeah, it was pretty fun, and we had a good conversation that night, and obviously Michael Porter Jr. doing just fine. It was really a pleasure to meet you. It just fun. It's worked out pretty well for him, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, things are going okay. He didn't play a lot in college, so for us Tiger fans, we're a little bit bummed about that, but nonetheless, it's nice to see his success. Um, yes. Your, your resume has fascinated me, as I said. I, I have followed you ever since, and I know we talked that night about NBA and you working, which we're going to get into, and just to give the listeners a little take about your resume, it's got a lot of moving parts to it. The NBA in multiple roles, including legal counsel, team management, some scouting, some interviewing, uh, major role as a VP with the sports management and representation firm, which I'm really interested to hear about. And now, okay. now the managing partner with Beautiful Game Group. Okay, so if somebody was looking up Noah, they're going to find out about Beautiful Game Group. Let's start with that. Tell me about okay. that and and what it is specifically and what your role is. Sure. Uh, it's a private equity fund, um, and we are investing uh, in soccer teams around the globe, but primarily in Europe. Um, your listeners may know that there's been a lot of activity in that space, the number of funds purchasing teams, a number of North Americans purchasing teams, um, some of it pandemic-related, some of it really a function of um, the uh, appreciation and values of uh, teams here in North America and people seeing a really good buying opportunity uh, in Europe and also the ability to create some and grow some revenue streams. So it's been exciting for me. It's a complete change uh, from basketball, but there are a lot of similarities and have drawn on my experience both as an agent and an executive, I think, to uh, to really come to soccer and uh, analyze uh some of the really exciting opportunities there. 
It's exploding. Soccer has definitely taken off. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that as we move forward. And I also really, as I said, want to get into the NBA uh, because it has been an interesting season that uh, that took place for the NBA and a lot of different moving parts. Let's let's start with you. okay? and your background, because you already kind of alluded to it about East St. Louis and, and growing up. I want to go all the way back there, Noah, and track your success. How did you get your start? You were you were a young kid growing up East St. Louis, and and what played a played a bunch of sports. What kind of a kid were you sure. back in yeah. the day? So uh, I grew up in East St. Louis. My um, my father had moved there from Alabama. My mother from Georgia. Um, like a lot of African Americans um, who migrated north from the South, uh, sort of in the Jim Crow era. Um, so I grew up in East St. Louis. My uncle was the first African-American mayor of East St. Louis. Um, my father worked in the school district and um, realized that um, for me to reach my potential, I probably needed to go to school outside of East St. Louis. So I was very fortunate and went to a school um, called MICDS. Um, there were two African-Americans in my class of uh, about 50 boys. Um, so it was a, it was a different experience, but Felt really fortunate to go there. Um, made a lot of really good friends. Many of my best friends today are people who I went to Country Day with, um, and was fortunate enough to uh, go to Stanford from Country Day. Had a really great experience there. Really enjoyed the school. Um, it was, uh, you know, a great time uh, in my life. And um, from Stanford, went to law school at the University of Virginia. Yeah, um, you so. you have really, I mean, you have really covered academia. I mean, it's it's impressive. Now let let let's back up for a second, okay? I don't want to get too far ahead of myself and get you into law school and all that just yet. <laughs> all right, let's talk about you as a kid. Um, who were your big influencers? And if we were to talk to a bunch of people who knew you when you were say eight, ten, twelve years old. Would they have said Noah's going to be a big-time executive in the NBA or an agent dealing with mega superstars or somebody that's going to be a managing partner of an organization that's, you know, collecting teams and franchises and building a sport? Would they have said that about you? Well, I think if uh, when I was born and growing up in East St. Louis, they might have not guessed that because the odds were probably against that. Um, but I think as I've gone through my career, I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of people who've been very influential. I mean, I have to thank my parents. Um, you know, I think it even goes back to my to my grandfather, uh, who I was named after. Um, but education has always been important in my family. Um, and so um, my parents prioritize that. My aunts and uncles prioritize that. Um, so, you know, that was probably my biggest influence. Um, and then um, once I went to Country Day, I was able to meet a number of very successful people um, and, um, you know, who, who were really um, served as mentors for me and helped guide my career um, and, and was very grateful for their support and assistance. And, and quite frankly, have just been really lucky throughout my life um, to come across a lot of people who've been very supportive and, and helped me along the way. Did you play sports? Were you an athlete or were you the guy that uh, said, Yeah, I so, so uh, you know, I played football. One of your uh, earlier guests uh, was a few, Mr. Uh, Buck, was a few years younger than me. And I remember he and his dad used to come out and watch our games. Um, but um, yeah, football was big. Uh, we lost in the state championship my senior year, which would have been uh, 1982 at Bush Memorial Stadium. Um, so uh, football was big, played basketball, ran track, and I actually ran track in college. Um, so, um, but was not a huge sports fan. And, and you know, I remember growing up, uh, we did not have an NBA team in St. Louis. The Hawks had moved to Atlanta uh, in the mid '60s, um, and uh, when I was a, a teenager, the spirit of St. Louis playing in the ABA. Um, and remember listening to Bob Costas call those games um, in the uh, in the early 80s. So um, was really a much bigger college sports fan, was a, was a Missouri Tiger fan, John Sunvold, Steve Stepanovich, 
um, sort of that era of Tigers with Norm Stewart. Um, so followed the Tigers closely and um, really just fell into the NBA. It wasn't a path that um, I sort of set out to follow, but was, as I said, lucky enough to, to sort of fall into a job at the NBA and one thing sort of led to another. Yeah, it sure did. And uh, I was there at Mizzou during that era, not of the Stepo and Sunvold era, just after that, but some really good <laughs> basketball teams with guys like Derek Chivas and Anthony Peeler and Doug Smith and, and number one in the country. Now, I try to forget things like Tyus Edney, okay? Right. I, try to, I try to let some things get <laughs> away from that, me, me and not so, remember like, that. We, uh, I, actually had, I actually had – Anthony Peeler actually played for the uh, – for the Grizzlies when I was in Vancouver and, and got to know him. And, and we used to reminisce about those, uh, those years in Columbia. So it was yeah, a lot of fun. it was, it was good times. The old big eight. Hey, let's That's talk right. about Stanford for a second, because okay. we know what a great academic school it is. We know that athletically speaking, there are a great number of programs over the years. Uh, the pandemic changes things for, for some, but would would you say that you were focused on becoming a professional sports executive at that time? Did you know what you wanted to do back then? Because there are a lot of people that would do almost anything to kind of have the role that you ultimately ended up in. Did you know that's what you wanted to do? I did not know that's what I wanted to do. Um, you know, quite frankly, I was uh, enjoying my time in Palo Alto, really enjoyed school, being a, a, a student athlete. Um, and while I certainly was interested in going to law school, wasn't even certain that I would go immediately after school. Um, you know, my father was a big promote, proponent of remaining in school. I think he was concerned that if I didn't go right away that I, I, I might not go to law school. Um, so um, I really just was taking things as they came and uh, applied to law school and got in and seemed like a really good opportunity. I went to Virginia. Um, and uh, that was uh, shortly after the, the Ralph Sampson era. Um, and so um, went there and fell in love with the school and, you know. Charlottesville's a go. beautiful place. Yeah. There's no, no doubt about that. Hot. Yeah. You, yeah. you went to uh, some great schools, <clears throat> Noah. I mean, your, your education sets you up for so many different things. And I'm always fascinated about the number of executives in professional sports. I mean, we're talking about the people at the top of the tree that have law degrees. But sports wasn't first on your resume when you graduated from Virginia. That's not where you went. You actually went to the Delaware Supreme Court as a clerk. I mean, this just doesn't it's interesting you know where where you kept going and how you ultimately got where you did so tell me about the yep i'm going to go to delaware out of school sure sure so um when i got out of law school my goal was to be a corporate lawyer um and so since most of the corporations in the u.s are incorporated in delaware there's a fair um amount of jurisprudence that emanates from delaware uh, so I actually went there and lived with a, a classmate of mine from UVA and we spent a year in Wilmington. It was great. Um, working for Justice Walsh, um, you know, just outside Philadelphia. Um, so I really enjoyed my time there. And then, um, I had worked for a firm called Latham and Watkins in the summer prior to my clerkship and accepted a position in their New York office, um, which and this is funny how things have sort of come full circle, but when I joined Latham and Watkins, they were intimately involved in creating MLS and a partner in the LA office named Alan Rothenberg um, was um, really the creator of the MLS and several uh, lawyers in the office who I worked with went on to um, work for um, Major League Soccer. The president is a former uh, Latham partner. And so it's sort of come full circle now that I am now um, reconnecting with a lot of the people who I got to know earlier in my career who are still involved in, in Major League Soccer. I mentor people and talk to people all the time about the value that comes from networking at the earliest of ages, and you just put it right into play for anybody that's listening to this. You never know where you're going to end up years down the road, and every person you meet has not only a background that can help you, but also they have a value 
that comes from just knowing them. I'm not saying you're saying, hey, what can you do for me? But my gosh, the contacts, they just never stop, do they? It has been very reaffirming. Um, one of the reasons that uh, I'm very excited about what I'm doing now is reconnecting with people who I knew 15, 20 years ago um, and formed relationships with, um, not out of any um, desire to um, leverage those relationships, but I think um, really true friendships. And um, many of those people have reached out to me and I've reconnected with them. And as I said, it's been very reaffirming. So you talked about New York and interesting couple of years there. And then all of a sudden, bam, the NBA. Associate counsel for the NBA League office. So you're in the in the corporate HQ. Uh, was that a dream opportunity? How did that come about? Yeah, so um, like a lot of young associates uh, in New York, and you know, there are obviously some very large law firms there, I had been working with uh, a recruiter. Um, I'd actually been looking at going into finance and, and working for an investment bank and had interviewed with several banks. And um, I went by her office one day on the way to a lawyer's league basketball game. And she said, oh, do you like basketball? I said, yes. And she said, well, I just got this posting. Gary Bettman is moving on to the NHL and the NBA is hiring some lawyers. Would you be interested in interviewing? So she set up an interview. One thing led to another. And, um, you know, a short time later, I was working at the uh, NBA league office. Amazing. And also, I'm always surprised by, and I shouldn't be anymore, the number of league commissioners at every sport or CEOs who have law backgrounds. Why is that so important? I mean, I think, you know, David Stern was really at the forefront of that. He was outside counsel for the for the NBA when he was a lawyer, um, came in-house and, and ultimately ascended to uh, commissioner. Um, but, you know, there are obviously a lot of collective bargaining and legal issues that um, the commissioner heads up um, and really negotiating the CBA is, in many respects, his primary responsibility. Um, and David did a great job. You know, he was great to work with. He was a tough taskmaster. Um, but it was a great time to be in the league office. Um, a lot of people um, who went on to other positions in the NBA and in professional sports in the office. Adam Silver was there when I when I joined, um, and it was a great experience, a great time. I was uh, working with uh, a lot of the GMs in the league, uh, interpreting the CBA. So Jerry West and Elgin Baylor and people like that would call me up and ask me, you know, player just missed the bus. How much can I find him? Uh, or we're trying to make a trade. Does this trade work under the rules of the salary cap? So for me, it was a great way to get to know um, the decision makers around the league. Good opportunity for me to to ask a question now that I was going to ask later, and that's about Adam Silver and David Stern. How, how were they different in their leadership, if you could sum it up? Well, <laughs> I would say that Adam ruled, I mean, uh, David ruled by fear. He was uh, very tough, um, Didn't wasn't afraid to challenge you or your assumptions, which, you know, I thought made me better, made people in the office better. Um, you needed to, to come prepared. Um, so he could be, he could be tough. I mean, Adam is very different, tough in a very different way. Um, in many ways, more compassionate and understanding. Um, you know, David, um, had created a lot of value for many of the owners. And so, um, was really able to get many things done and many things past because of his influence over the owners um you know adam has to lead um much more by consensus um you know sort of new breed of owner who have made billions in other industries um really are very demanding and i think he's the perfect leader for the time we're in i think he's done a tremendous job um leading the league through some very difficult times um, and have nothing but positive things to say about his leadership. Different brand of athlete today, too. I mean, the, the times are so no different. I mean, we're talking about athletes who are basically almost corporate CEOs of their own brand well, and image. Corporate CEOs and activists. And, um, you know, really striking that balance between the NBA's brand 
and trying to um, grow the NBA's brand, but also address um, many of the athletes' needs, you know, and, and make no mistake, the fact that, you know, 75% of the athletes in the NBA are African-American um, makes the NBA very unique. Um, and in the times we're living in, um, certainly um, their voices need to be heard and understood. And I think Adam, as I said, has, has struck a very delicate balance. Hey, everybody. I really want to tell you about Ahead, one of our new partners this season and now the official headwear provider of Tracks to Success. Creativity, a sharp look, dozens of styles to choose from. Ahead's been supplying the most prestigious events and outfitting the world's top golfers for 25 years, and it's perfect for you as well. So if you're looking to dress for success, make sure you think Ahead. Here's your chance to save big. Visit aheadusashop.com now and use the code TTSPOD. That's TTSPOD and receive 20% off your purchase. Ahead, the finest in headwear, the official headwear of the Tracks to Success podcast and available at aheadusashop.com. You landed with the Vancouver Grizzlies. All right. Now, some people would say, oh, Vancouver Grizzlies. I didn't even know. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they had a team, okay, as an assistant GM and legal counsel, which makes total sense. Uh, tell me how those two roles merge. Or assistant GM, I, I don't necessarily think of legal counsel, but you ended up in Vancouver. That's a pretty far drive from New York City. Did you enjoy your time? Yes. What did you do there for the Grizz? Uh, Vancouver was an awesome place, and in many ways – one of the more rewarding professional experiences in my life. I mean, we really built something from nothing. We bought a sport to a country that was not a traditional basketball hotbed. There were not um, many um, sort of uh, tried and true NBA fans. It really was hockey country. And, and keep in mind, the NBA expanded to Toronto and Vancouver in 1995. Um, and so I went to Vancouver, built uh, a team from nothing, basically, um, introduced basketball to the community. Um, and unfortunately, after five years, the team moved to Memphis. Um, but it was a, a great time in my life. Made a lot of really great friends. I met my wife there and ultimately um, ended up living in Vancouver for 20 years. It's a great city. I've, I've been there. It's beautiful. And the people in Canada, they're so special. You didn't make the move to Memphis. What's interesting about that is you, you pivot again, okay? And, and there have been some pivots in your career, which I think really helps people to understand the value that comes from that and career success not being a straight line for most people. So when you don't make the move to Memphis, when the team relocates, you keep the law focus, you find your way to... Goodwin Sports Management, which some people listening wouldn't even know who that is, but the bottom line is big firm, uh, sorry, boutique firm, big name clients. You were an agent basically at that point, right? Is is yeah. that something yeah. you said, hey, this is cool. I really, this could be my future? Well, I never really set out to be an agent either, but um, at the time was looking for a way to continue living in Vancouver and staying involved in the NBA. And so um, I'd had some opportunities back in the US at the league office and other places. But as I said, I met my wife in Vancouver and I really love living there. So um, when I, in 1996, the Grizzlies drafted Sharif Abdul Rahim from Cal and his agent was a gentleman named Aaron Goodwin. So I got to be uh, friends with Aaron um, and he had a small agency at the time. He had Vin Baker and Gary Payton. Um, Paul Pierce, Jason Kidd, um, but he signed LeBron James um, that summer and said, hey, would you like to come on board? Um, we've got, I've got a lot of things going on. This could be a really good opportunity for you. And their office was in Seattle. So um, would commute to Seattle. The Sonnets were still in town. So um, was able to stay involved in the NBA, um, representing many NBA players. Subsequently, we signed Kevin Durant, Dwight Howard, um, Jamal Crawford, Nate Robinson, Damian Lillard, DeMar DeRozan. Um, so, and then I had my own clients, I, Willie Green, 
Delonte West, a number of others, um, oversaw our international business. Um, so um, I think that I was very fortunate that I was able to continue living in Vancouver and still being very involved in the NBA. You just rattled off all the names I was going to throw at people. I and mean, when you're talking about representation <laughs> of LeBron James, Dwight Howard, uh, uh, Damian Lillard, I mean, we, we go on and on with all the names you just you just name dropped for me. That's 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 pretty big stuff. OK, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts and superstar brands and a lot that goes into that. How tough is it slash was it to manage those superstars and and steer them right in a world right where they have to navigate a whole lot of things dangers are out there that can derail a career and a brand in no time sure uh it there were many challenges i mean that's a very very tough business not for the faint of heart um you know part of the problem of course is that um players change agents relatively frequently um and so um particularly if a client is successful, it's not unusual for uh, another agent to attempt to poach him. And so that makes it very difficult at times to be honest with players and tell them how you truly feel. Um, so um, it had its challenges, but um, it was an exciting time, um, you know, and got to see another part of the business. Um, and I think had much more appreciation for the jobs the job that agents did. Um, I think a lot of people um, do not understand the pressures or challenges of being an agent. Um, and so um, that gave me a, a very different perspective on, on the business of being an agent and representing players. And I think um, made me a much better executive when I returned to the NBA. What would you say was your biggest impact? And, and did you think you were making a big impact? In other words, as you're building your brand along the way, some people don't even know that that's what they're doing because they don't necessarily know their why or they don't know what they're trying to accomplish. They do a job. They don't think about the bigger picture. Did you know what your impact was at that point? I didn't know what my impact was at that point, but I think that as I, I look back on it today, um, I take a great deal of satisfaction in the success that some of my clients have had in their post playing careers. Um, and so I think when you're in the middle of it, um, you don't always understand or appreciate what's going on or how you're affecting people's lives. But to the extent I pay, played even a small role in my client's success, um, it gave, gives me a great deal of satisfaction. And, you know, um, I had clients who uh, fired me and changed agents at various times, which, as I said, is quite common, um, but feel like the relationship I have with those, some of those individuals today um, is much stronger than it was then. And I think um, they have shown appreciation for the role I played in their career development. Um, Many of them reach out to me uh, for counsel um, later in their careers. So um, that has been very gratifying and rewarding and um, so certainly something I look back on, uh, my ability to mentor uh, and influence um, young athletes and young men who um, have, have become, quite frankly, um, outstanding professionals. You've been one as well, and then another pivot for you, <laughs> and back to the team game, and back to a big city, which is which is where you are now. Uh, let's talk mm -hmm. about Minneapolis and the T-Wolves, because after being an agent for a while, now you're back as an assistant GM for, what, about three years with uh, Minnesota. What was the reason for that jump? And I know what impact you made there, which I'll get to in a second, but did you just love it that much? Is that what you really wanted to do? Well, combination of factors. You know, when I started as an agent, I did not have, I was not married and did not have a family. And so uh, I would say over the course of the 15 years I was good with Goodwin Sports, um, my priorities changed a bit um, and wasn't uh, in a position to um, be on the road as much chasing players. Um, and, and so, so that grind had, had gotten old. 
Um, even people today often ask me, um, am I interested in going back in into that business? And, um, you know, not a lifestyle that I necessarily uh, would enjoy at this point. Um, when I when I did it, it was the timing was great and I really enjoyed it. But um, it was a grind. So uh, when Tom Thibodeau got the job here in Minnesota, uh, I reached out to him. I'd gotten to know him a little bit. Um, after he left Chicago and we had several mutual friends. So I reached out to him and he offered me an opportunity to come and be the assistant GM here in Minnesota. So, um, I was, I was really, um, excited to move back to the States. Um, as much as I loved, um, Vancouver, I thought it was important for my children as African Americans to understand what it means to be an African American in the United States, which is very different than what it means to be black in Canada. And so I thought uh, as part of their sort of personal development, it was important that we live in the US and this was a great opportunity for us to come to Minnesota. It's such a great city. Uh, culturally speaking, and and obviously it's a it's it's a good sports town. There's no doubt about that. What is the toughest thing you learned about being a GM? Uh, I know you had a, a big impact in in the area of mental health with a lot of athletes and trying to um, you know help them. I say navigate again uh, through some some various challenges. But what is the toughest thing about being a GM? Is it picking the right players? Is it making sure the players are on board? Is what is it? I mean, there are a multitude of issues from dealing with um, ownership, dealing with um, fans, dealing with uh, players. Um, and making really hard decisions uh, that affect people's lives and their families' lives. So, um, you know, winning is important. And, um, you know, hopefully, um, you know, the decisions we made when we were running the team, um, people understand and appreciate we're designed to put a winning product on the floor. But um, it's very challenging to win consistently in the NBA and, I take my hat off to franchises uh, and, and general managers who have been able to have sustained success. Miami would be one of them. I mean, they've had the same coach for years. Uh, Spolstra's that guy. Pat Riley's been there. What do you see? You just you just mentioned that you take your hat off to those who've had continued success. Um, you were there three years, Thibodeau leaves, and, and then you're pivoting again. Right. So it, it's a window, isn't it? It's a small window for most franchises. The pressure must be massive. Yes, yes it, it can be a very uh, small window. Um, you know, attendance and, uh, you know, owners are often uh, impatient, obviously, with the kinds of dollars that are at stake. Um, winning, as I said, is important. And, um, you know, if, if you can't win, and I'm surprised at how quickly teams now uh, change coaches, change general managers, but obviously um, what you see is, um, you know, consistent leadership uh, at teams that have had, uh, as I've said, sustained success. Um, so, Season two of Tracks to Success is brought to you by Presentation Partners. Presentation Partners is a unique team of award-winning executives helping you build a presentation others will be talking about. Presentation Partners teaches you the true art of storytelling. And if you haven't heard about their neuroscience of persuasion, you'll see how valuable it is to own it. Whether you're a company or an entrepreneur, Presentation Partners is the team you need behind you. For almost 15 years, they've helped clients raise millions in capital and countless dollars in sales simply by making top leaders successful presenters. The time is now to find your authentic voice and learn your authentic story. Presentation Partners, creating persuasive story presentations based on something other than just your good looks. Let's talk about why the league job might be drastically different than the team job, okay? Uh, there's got to be a, a lot of different moving parts to overseeing a league from the vantage point that you saw it and then coming in and trying to be involved in a community and managing only 
what, uh, 12 to 15 players versus an entire league. Um, is there one that you valued a little bit more that you enjoyed more? You seem like a community type of guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of the issue at the league is that you have to be neutral and, um, there is this belief that the league office is favoring large market cities, teams in large markets, that they want to drive revenues so that they're um, influencing the outcomes of games so that the Lakers or the Knicks get preferential treatment. So, you know, striking that balance can be extremely difficult. And even if you are not favoring one team or even if you are indifferent as to outcomes, you know, that, you almost have to go very far the other way to um, to eliminate any suggestion that you are not impartial. Um, when you have uh, having a rooting interest in a team is tremendous. You live and die on the wins and losses. Um, the connection to the city is 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 a great feeling. I was been able to get very involved in the community here. One of the reasons I still live here is because of how much my family likes it and. Um, and, and even though it's been uh, a challenging year in many respects here in Minneapolis, um, you know, I feel like I and my family have really been embraced by the city. Let's get back to the mental health aspect. Can you share a little bit about mm-hmm. the impact that you made there and why it became a focus for you? I, I've listened to you on <laughs> other podcasts and, and you know, I've, I've, dived into your resume a little bit and that was a big part of who you were and how you were able to help big name stars. Sure. Um, well, I mean, really it goes back, I think to my mother, um, who was a a psych nurse, uh, at the veterans hospital in St. Louis. Um, and so, um, you know, just growing up probably was a little bit more sensitive to some of those issues than I might've otherwise been. And then when I became an agent, um, I represented a player named Delonte West. Um, and so, um, you know, he was a great player, great person. Um, but early in his career, he was diagnosed as having bipolar disorder. Um, and that presented many challenges, as you can imagine. Um, you know, a lot of late night calls, a lot, uh, you know, I remember incidents where um, when he was with the Cavaliers, they played in New Orleans and he refused to get on the plane and didn't want to fly to, to the next city um, with his team, and they left him behind. Um, you know, at one point, he was arrested driving down the highway in Maryland um, on a three-wheel motorcycle with a shotgun uh, in a, a guitar case on his back. Um, and so it was uh, a challenging time, and, and you know, as you may know, he's been in the news recently um, um, because he's been uh, dealing with a number of issues, um, but um, I still um, have a relationship with him and his mother. Um, and so I think um, those issues, I was probably, as I said, a lot more sensitive to than others. So when I came to the Timberwolves, I um, formed a close relationship with the Timberwolves sports psychologist, gentleman named Justin Anderson. Um, and so really worked to, um, make his services available to the players more widely, um, than they had been previously. Um, and, um, I, you know, I, I think the players appreciated that. I mean, you know, player care and player development were two issues. I think because I was an agent that were very, I was very attuned to, um, and appreciated that we had, um, really, young men, many of whom had come from disadvantaged backgrounds who were put into a situation where they were expected to be professionals. And some of them may not have had the tools to deal with the situation that they were put in. Um, And the NBA can be a cold, hard place um, if you are not able to produce. Um, And so um, wanted to make sure that those athletes had the support and attention they needed to be successful. Okay, you just touched on it, and that's exactly where I was going, so thanks for the segue. Uh, a lot of these guys come out of college or from wherever, could be Europe, could be somewhere else overseas. They're very young. The NBA is, is a grind. It's travel. It's bright lights. It's big arenas. It's big money. 
as an agent, you've got to deal with a lot of different things. When you're in control of a team, I'm sure you've got to deal with certain things because their brand is also a representation of your brand as an organization. What is it that is so difficult for these young stars to deal with? And how much pressure was there on you to help them along? Are they truly ready for the big big superstar status? I mean, I think it varies from athlete to athlete, and a lot has to do with your upbringing um, and your family situation. Um, you know, there are many of the athletes who, um, and I, I probably saw this more as an agent um, getting to know their families, but, you know, many of these athletes come from single-parent families, um, and I do see a difference, um, particularly African-American young men coming from um, single-parent households as opposed to households where there are two parents in the household. Um, and so, you know, they have a number of issues. Um, and it's tough um, because you're giving a lot of money. And, and the reality is you have a lot of free time. And, um, you know, if you are not uh, a person who um, has a number of hobbies or a number of um, ways to engage yourself, you know, there are a lot of problems that you can get into. So um, I encourage players to um, take advantage of their time um, when they weren't practicing or they weren't in the gym um, and try to make that time as productive as they could. Um, you know, talk to veteran players, understand how they made the transition. Now you got to remember when these guys are in college, they go to class and they go practice, their schedules are full. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, a few months later, they're in the NBA, they may practice two or three hours a day, then they have a lot of time on their hands, and often a lot of money. Um, and those two can be a challenging combination for many, um, if they are not disciplined. And so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, trying to make that transition as smooth as possible is something I spend a lot of time working on. In addition to hosting this podcast, Craig leads the Can Advisory Group, focused on elevating communication for companies and individuals. Company consulting, empowering team and individual workshops, mind-altering webinars, and Craig's inspiring keynotes for your conference or company meeting. They're all on the menu of services. Can Advisory helps companies clarify their message, helps professionals build and showcase their brand, and helps everyone present their best selves. So if you're the leader of a team or company looking to give your employees a game-changing one-day experience or an individual who wants to become a speaker and presenter that gets other people talking, visit canadvisory.com. And when you do connect, make sure to mention the Tracks to Success podcast to receive a special discount on any of the Can Advisory services. That's canadvisory.com. Now back to the interview. Talking with Noah Kroom here on Tracks to Success and a fascinating story and great conversation. I want to ask you about the NBA season that just concluded and how you believe uh, the league handled the, the pandemic and the bubble of putting all those teams and all those players in one city, Central Florida, Orlando. What, what is your take on that? Um, I thought the league did a great job. I mean, it was a Herculean task, obviously, um, to restart the season um, and not inexpensive. But, you know, by completing the season, they were able to uh, receive the broadcast revenues that were um, tied to the, to the league completing the playoffs. So it was absolutely uh, important for the, the welfare of the league. Um, and, um, I, you know, I think that, It'll be interesting how what happened in the bubble affects the NBA moving forward. Um, talking to many of the people who were there, they felt the lack of travel um, really made the product much better. And the fact that teams were not getting on planes after games and flying to cities and getting in at two or three in the morning and playing the next day really made the product better. Um, and so, and, and, and you know, now our schedule has been, uh, upended. So it'll be interesting to see. And there had been talk about the NBA starting their season later and 
so that there's less um, conflict with the NFL, that that might actually um, benefit from a broadcast standpoint. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that impacts the NBA going forward. Um, you know, television ratings were down um, for, the, for the finals and the playoffs. I'm sure there are a number of reasons for that. Obviously, there's a lot of, um, a lot of sports on television currently. Um, you know, the U.S. Open was played in the fall. Baseball had started. Um, the NHL was in their playoffs. So um, it'll be interesting to see um, what that looks like going forward as well, as far as television is concerned. So I think that uh, um, sports as we know it will change going forward. Um, and I'm excited to see what's different and um, what the NBA and other sports look like as we move into 2021. A few more things before we put a wrap on this. I want to get back to where you currently are uh, as a partner in Beautiful Game Group and yep. the role that you have there as as a partner. Uh, you've got real ownership in the growth of something, trying to take something that's new and, and take it to another level. Kind of brings you back to the Grizzlies, right? When you started there and you helped shape the brand and push the message out there, creating more awareness, all of that. Do you like fitting in a role you know, as you might have done at the NBA in a league office or, or with a team? Or do you like more, specific to Noah and his career, do you like being kind of at the head of the bus making the decisions and, and really shaping something? I mean, at this juncture of my career, I really like the influence I have over the direction of the organization. You know, as we continue to add pieces to our group, um, I like the fact that I have influence on on who I get to work with and who I don't work with. Um, those are things that are important to me in my career now. Um, the fact that I'm building something um, new and exciting um, also motivates me. Uh, so I'm really happy with where I am now in my career. I feel like um, in many respects, um, this is where I am meant to be and what I'm meant to do. What advice would you give somebody who's we'll call it coming out of college, be it uh, Stanford or Virginia like you, in knowing what you know now, if you could have shared that with Noah back then, what would you tell them uh, about sports in their future as an executive if that was their aspiration or their dream? How would they get there? What do they need to know about what you have already been through? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think what I often tell young people who approach me and are interested in getting involved in sports is that it is absolutely important to network, network, network. Um, get to know as many people as you can. Um, a lot of students reach out to me and ask, you know, how can I do what you did or how can I get to where you are? Um, and there is no direct straight line to uh, opportunities in the NBA or another, any other professional sports. Um, but, um, the first thing that you have to do, I think, is get to know as many people as you can. And, you know, in this day and age, reaching out to people on online or through LinkedIn is a great way to network and get to know people. Um, so I think that is absolutely essential. The other thing I tell people to do is to set yourself apart. And, you know, people often say, well, should I go to law school? Should I take what you took? Should I do what you did? I think you've got to do what you're passionate about and what motivates you. And so um, following my path is not necessarily the path that you need to follow. Everyone needs to follow their own path. And so to the extent you can distinguish yourself uh, and do something that you enjoy, I think that is the road to success, not emulating someone else. Interesting about the path. Are you proud of yours or is it incomplete? Yeah, I mean, uh, my story is not over yet. I am... Uh, as I said um, earlier, um, I take a great deal of pride in um, the success that the people I have impacted are currently having. I feel like I have um, taken a lot of time and put a lot of energy into mentoring and helping um, a lot of people. And so um, one of my greatest joys is their success. Last thing, this podcast is called Tracks to Success. 
and whether it be talking to athletes or steering them as an agent or managing a team or being a part of a league, all things that you have done in a in a very strong and and uh, impressive career. What about this? What about purpose? What's the key? What would you tell people the key is to finding your career purpose? Um, you know, for me, um, it has been the people who I have met along the way, um, those who have supported me and those who I have supported. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's about the people. And that's what, as I said, I'm enjoying about what I'm doing now because you know, I get to choose the people who I work with and who I associate with. Um, and it's, at the end of the day, it's about the people. It's always about the people. And I'm glad to have met you. You talk about networking and, and I go all the way back to, to meeting you at an establishment in Columbia, Missouri. It's been great talking with you. Really appreciate it, Noah. And uh, I hope we get to catch a game sometime together in some city. Thank you so much for being hey, a part of it. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, speaking with you and, and good luck to you. As you just heard, Noah had a unique journey up the ladder in professional sports, from law to team management to the role of an agent and back into the big business of building teams. And that leads me to my one last thing. I want to focus on the word agent. Most of us immediately focus on the dollars and cents of representing big sports athletes. But what we need is to be an agent of our own career. Our most important client is actually ourself. And if we don't take care of ourselves, it's very difficult to make an impact with others. Spend time and energy charting a course for yourself. Where do you want to go? Who do you want to serve? What do you want your legacy to be? It's through these questions that we can find our true purpose and also the destination that gives us the most personal and professional reward. I've had agents and I've worked with agents the best, stay true to the person or client first. And if they do, the money is rarely the focal point of professional success. So if you want to be an influencer, make sure you represent yourself to the best of your ability. Be an agent with a plan and then lay it out for your own eyes. Approve it or tweak it, but make it your own plan and the one you're comfortable with. Do that, you're tracked to success becomes a whole lot easier. If you have a guest you'd like me to talk to, email me at info at Until next time, I'm Craig Can. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Tracks to Success, brought to you by Presentation Partners, visual storytellers passionate about connecting presenters with their audience. Don't forget to subscribe to the show for more great interviews and thoughts on reaching your highest personal and professional summit. You can follow Craig on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Craig Can. And for exclusive Tracks to Success content and news about our upcoming guests, you can find Tracks to Success on Twitter. It's at Tracks to Success.